what you eating? String cheese this time. String cheese. All right. Well, Kara, uh, welcome. Uh, oh, shit. Hey, Kara. <laughs> hey, Chris. How are you Welcome doing? to your own podcast, Kara. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here today, Chris. Thanks for inviting me on. I know. I'm sure you're really excited since you're leaving for Finland tomorrow and haven't even packed. I bet Mm-mm. you're really excited to be on here, aren't you? I have just a giant laundry basket filled with clothes I need to bring. And I have now come to the realization I cannot go all carry-on. It's too cold, and so all the clothes are super bulky. I haven't done carry-on, all carry-on in a while. I just gave up because I hate, like, scrunching 700 things into a tiny bag and then realizing they're all the wrong things. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is, you know... And the fluid. The fluid rules. That's what I don't like. So part of me is kind of excited that once that bag is checked, I'm done. That's right. Yeah. You can relax. This, mm-hmm. this past year, I think I had, I remember I had like 700, I, I went to some meeting and I had like 700 things strapped around me and they let, they let them all go through the thing. And I'm like <laughs> holding them and they're like, I'm like, can I get all three of these on the plane? And they're like, eh, probably not. Like, oh, son of a bitch. What am I going to do then? Then you gate check. I love gate checking. That has become my new favorite thing to do with oh, my no, carry on. Like free, I'm going right? to gate check. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway, so who do we, we have today, Chris? We're talking to Dr. Allison Murray. She is an assistant professor at the University of Victoria in Canada, and her research examines the evolutionary and behavioral mechanisms shaping variation in human bone and body composition, as well as sex differences. She combines a study of archaeological skeletal remains with engineering-based musculoskeletal computer modeling and the experimental uh, study of living humans, including athletes, mm-hmm. like somebody I know, and control subjects. Um, so we talk, we're going to talk to her today about a new paper that she and Marta Erlinson have out in American Journal of Human Biology called Tibial Cortical and Trabecular Variables Together, can pinpoint the timing of impact loading relative to menarche in premenopausal females. All right, let's bring her in. Allison, hello. Sorry to keep you waiting. Oh, that's okay. I have more than enough work to occupy. It's nice to meet you. I'm not sure any of us have actually met you in person. I don't think so, no. Oh, well, we, welcome to the Sausage of Science. It's yeah, great welcome. to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Are you guys going to uh, AABAs this year? I'm I'm on the fence because I'm on leave, so I don't know if I'm going to go or not. Yeah, so I, if I go, I'm, it's for funsies. I'm an HBA. I'm the PR director chair. I'm on the executive mm. committee, so I have yeah. to go to the HBA. And I'm also on the program committee for AABA, so I'm probably right. supposed to go. Right. Well, Seems. you'll be there anyways, right? Because it's yeah. HBA is right before. Yeah. yeah. So definitely. I always go to, I mean... I was, as I told my students, you know, pay for one and go to all of them. All 17 <laughs> conferences that meet simultaneously. <laughs> Paleopathology, dental, mm-hmm. genetics, fingernail anthropology, toe wait, wait, anthropology. Wait, wait. I would have believed you about fingernail anthropology, given that it's used in cortisol. But then you went to toe jam and like, nah, this is all facetious. <laughs> I, bet, I, bet, I bet toe jam will be the new milk, will be the new cortisol in the plenary sessions this year. We'll see what gets proposed. <laughs> Sorry, Allison, yeah. we tend to go off the rails really fast. 
Anyway. I was just thinking, like, as I was kind of looking at the questions you spent, I just thought, okay. <laughs> and so the first question we keep the same across all of our interviews, and that's to learn a little bit about you and how you came to anthropology and decided to pursue it as a career. So tell us about your journey. Um, yeah, I was born in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and did my first two degrees there, actually. So I lived there, like, right until I was 26. So the University of Saskatchewan, shout out to any <laughs> listeners. That's um, a first for us. So good really? Oh, uh, yeah. Woo. Yeah, I loved it. Um, but I, I didn't initially have any interest in anthropology, to be honest. Like, I wanted to be a doctor. I feel like maybe a lot of biological anthropologists... Started down a similar route, Doctor Murray, like a like a medical doctor, because I liked biology, and that's kind of what you think. Oh, maybe I should be a doctor. Um, so I went into anatomy and cell biology, and then realized I don't really like cell biology. That's not that's not what I was interested in. So changed degrees from anatomy to paleobiology, <laughs> which was a teeny tiny degree program at the University of Saskatchewan. There was me. And one other student in my graduating year. So I never, and I never met, I don't know, I was How interested in two students and you never met the other one. Well, because it was interdisciplinary. So it was based in geology, but it was between biology, anthropology, or archaeology, our department was, and biology, geology, and archaeology. And you could pick and choose from a huge set of courses amongst those three disciplines. So I would kind of go way more the route of taking all the bone archaeology classes and all the vertebrate evolution biology classes. And clearly this other person was interested in some other aspect and picked different courses or I don't know. Less cool courses. Less cool. Yeah. And that, that was a good fit. And that kind of set me off down. Well, I like biology. I like evolution. Well, just take walk through the doors that open for me at any given moment and like i didn't really have a plan never wanted to be a professor adamantly did not want to work in academia <laughs> here i am so things change so how'd that happen i didn't really know what was involved i just thought if i wanted to be a teacher i would go into the you know education realizing not really realizing what a professor actually does and that kind of thing. I don't know. And also how hard it is to get any kind of job in biological anthropology. But yeah, I did my master's in bioarch. And it wasn't really until my PhD that I even learned that biological anthropology was a thing or an option um, that I became aware of it, really, because I just thought J. Stock's research was cool. <laughs> so I applied to work with him for my PhD Never encountered bioanth before, but I just liked what he did. Loved it once I started. So he does cool stuff. Jay Stock does really cool stuff, but it's also a comical bane in my life because I get sent all his articles to review. Yeah, I mean it's, it's a like, small Jay. <laughs> small community of of you working in that kind of very specific ultra endurance evolutionary life history kind of world so i'm not surprised i'm sure he's reviewed many of your papers so you were lucky enough to fall forward and land as, a, as an assistant professor there no yeah well i i did my phd with jay stock and then i stayed there 
in a four-year postdoc, which was very lucky, um, and applied for jobs like all the time and didn't get a thing um, until this one came up. And I actually left my postdoc a year early to take this job. So luckily that postdoc afforded me a lot of flexibility and to be patient because there were so few jobs kind of for this in this area. Um, so I got lucky, but yeah, a lot of luck and just being in the right place at the right time as well. And doing good work up here. Let's talk about it. Right. So we read your, your AJHB paper that you uh, just published with Marta Erlinson. Mm -hmm. um, and we wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the, the motivations and aims. Hmm. Sure. This paper is an excellent one to ask me that question for, because it has the most ridiculous origin story. Probably I, I never set out to study this particular question. I didn't even think about it. Um, the reason the seed was sparked because I scanned my own leg in the CT scanner when I was data collecting for an other study, putting athletes in the CT scanner. Obviously, I had to put myself in. And then the results of my own scan were weird and thus was born this study. Uh, but like 10 years later, 10 years happened between when I was like, oh, that's weird and actually did anything about it. Um, so were you an athlete? Is that I used to be. Yeah, I used to, from about age 14 to 26, I ran um, with sort of the city track and field club in Saskatoon. And then I ran for the university during my undergrad and master's. And so, you know, I did a lot of sport kind of from a younger age and then sub sort of retired, I suppose. And then by the time I actually scanned myself, I had not done anything. And and I had also been scanning all of these runners and soccer players and I knew their bone strength data from these CT scans. And so of course calculated my own, <laughs> you know, like what do I look like compared to these young women? I'm gonna brag a little. My shin bone was the strongest of all of the runners. I had a stronger shin bone. Uh, my bone strength was really high. And I was like, oh, I still look like a runner. Woo. Uh, but my bone density in the same bone, I had the lowest bone density of even the controls, the unactive group of undergraduates. These are the humblest brags I've ever heard. So, I mean, I was um, like feeling really good for a moment <laughs> and then was feeling like, oh, no, do I need to worry about this? Like, I got low bone density. To be fair, I was older than them. So that would be to be expected anyways. But... Um, so that's where I got started. I was like, I look like a runner in one aspect of my bone still, though I do not run anymore and haven't for a long time. Um, yet I really don't look athletic at all in the other one. And that just got me thinking because I had sort of was fresh out of my PhD where I'd been looking at cortical bone, which is kind of the aspect of my bone that was really strong still. I'd been looking at that in archaeological populations of adults and saying, oh, they got stronger bones, they're more active. And then I thought like, ooh, am I just seeing what they were doing as kids? I was like, I'm not active right now, but if you didn't know that, you'd think I was. Um, and so that just sort of planted the seed and I never really did anything about it for 10 years kind of until an old friend, Marta Erlinson and I did track together. We, we knew each other, she's from Saskatoon, she's still at the US and she had a data set that could look at this kind of, could test this question like, oh, is 
cortical bone actually in an adult really just showing you what what they did as kids and in that case it's really interesting from an osteoporosis perspective in terms of when to target you know exercise but also from an anthropological perspective when it's you're maybe trying to interpret behavior in someone's life and it's much more common to have adult bones but like is this a bit like a time machine can you look back in time and see what somebody was doing earlier in their life but depending on where what sort of what you're measuring so that's kind of where the motivation came from this sort of long-winded journey of exploration now i i love this because i have some weird similar revelations for a project that we're working on um where i got to you know dexa scan myself because dexa scan is part of it so you dexa scan yourself uh and so learned one i have basically no torso <laughs> it's just um, ribs right into pelvis. No, I can literally squish my fingers and I can clink my ribs on my pelvis. So I have no torso, but I have excessively long arms and an excessively long tibia. So I'm a former power lifter uh, mm -hmm. and I have a bone density that is almost two standard deviations higher, higher. than you know a woman my age or a female my age. And I haven't been lifting now for two years, but the bone density is still there, or I could just have rock-like bones huh. anyway. <laughs> However, I'm going to burst your bubble here. Don't burst it. DEXA cannot distinguish between cortical and trabecular bone, so it doesn't oh. know where that bone density is coming from. Interesting. The, the CT scanner that we used here can separate. Hmm. Yeah, that thick shell from the spongy inside. Yeah. And most of the bone you lose as you get older or, you know, develop osteoporosis, it's coming from the trabecular bone. Damn. So, and that really, I would guess, is lower. That's not where that high bone density is coming from in you. I'd guess it's you built a lot of cortical bone. I have a tough shell. When you shell. were lifting, you've got, got a, a, tough outer a big, shell. strong shell. <laughs> yeah. So it can look like you get this high bone mass that mm -hmm. can persist for a long time, but it's coming from the cortical bone. So Jason, I want to interject a question for our listeners who haven't taken osteology yet. Can you tell us the difference between <laughs> cortical and trabecular bone? Yeah, sorry, I should have defined that. It's the same structure, it's the same tissue, basically, just how is it organized in 3D, I suppose. So if we think about your thigh bone, when you look at it from the outside, it's just this solid bone. That's cortical bone. Uh, inside that, if you could slice open the bone and look inside, there's quite a lot of spongy, three-dimensional lattice-like bone, and that's trabecular bone. So it's just organized differently in three dimensions. And trabecular bone is um, much more porous. Cortical bone is much denser. Um, so if you put on a lot of cortical bone, a kid doing a lot of sport, it's that really dense, thick outer shell. Yeah. And so both of these bones for our audience respond to forces mm -hmm. that you put on it throughout life. Yeah. And so in your paper, you refer to mechanical loading in adolescence at or around peak height velocity and menarche. Uh, as a significant window of opportunity for functional adaptation to loading in both males and females. Can you explain what this actually means for our listeners and then, then unpack some of these terms, which we're getting on a little bit here. So what is loading? 
what are the g-forces being exerted the kind of biomechanical things most folks are not familiar with i'm not a biomechanist so sometimes I'm like oh no simplifying biomechanical stuff i hope i do it justice but um the way you know the way you can kind of think about it is when you're moving around or doing stuff you're putting um, forces on your bones pulling pushing squeezing twisting that's what loading is when i say we're loading the bones that can come from just standing upright. Your body weight is pressing down on your leg bones or your weight-bearing bones. So that's a source of loading. Bigger people who weigh more exert more loading on their weight-bearing bones. And so they'll tend to, you know, their bones have to be able to deal with that. You have to be strong enough not to break under your body weight. Um, but other sources of loading happen from inside and outside the body. Your muscles pull on the bones as you move around. And that's a kind of an internal force that your bone has to not break when you flex your biceps. <laughs> oh no. And then another absurd <laughs> story. I, I know I have all these absurd like bone related issues that there was a point in my powerlifting that I was bench pressing so much that I end up actually bruising my manubrium from the pectoralis <laughs> major pulling on it so much. I feel like you might be the only person who has ever bruised their mastubrium. I bruised my bone weightlifting and I literally broke my back weightlifting. So this is where I question my bone strength when my muscles mm. are clearly <laughs> destroying you were very strong. Yeah. Well, that's the thing where your bone strength couldn't tolerate the, the forces you were using, sort of exerting on them, both from the weight itself and from the muscles pulling on it. When your foot hits the ground when you're running, that is also force called an external force. And that's when we are really interested in um, because of ground reaction force, basically the ground hits back up at you <laughs> in a sense. And that's really common when you're walking or running. So when you're thinking about the evolution of bipedalism and the sort of structural changes in the bone to deal with that, ground reaction force is something we think about. And so that's kind of what loading is, comes from a variety of different sources. Bones, we, you know, they don't want to break under these forces. So they will adjust. The bone cells are alive. They're sensing all of this force and they adjust to make sure that their structure and their density is enough to withstand those. And different people do different things. And so their bones can look different because they respond pretty quickly um, to changes in loading. You increase increase the loading, you suddenly take up sprinting or something, your bones will, will need to probably adjust a little to deal with that extra load. And we can see that. So why is this period of adolescence, the, the peak growth velocity, menarche, why are these important? What, what makes them a window of opportunity then? Mm. And then what relationship does uh, mechanical loading at that period have on adults? Uh, adult stuff, for one of a better technical word. Right. Well, puberty basically is, you know, the end of puberty is when you stop growing. And that means your bones stop growing also in length. Your growth plates fuse, you're, you're as tall as you're going to be. You know, when the bone is still growing and getting bigger, there's a lot of activity in the cells. It's changing size and shape anyways. And so when you load a lot, when all of that's already going on, it can just accelerate those processes. Whereas, and so have a big effect. Once you're done growing, that all of that modeling and all of those changes in, in size and stuff like that, they're not happening anymore. So 
in adulthood is helpful, but it, it really can only modify what's already going on, which is just not as much. Once you're older, you really, loading is really just helping you not lose as much bone with age. It helps you maintain what you already have, but not so good at building more. You want to do loading when you're already building bone when you're growing. So you're building the most bone during your pubertal growth spurt. That's when you pack on most of the mineral into your skeleton or you pack it on the fastest. So if you load during that time when you're having your peak growth spurt, you can have you know, a big effect on the, on the bones. They'll become denser or you know, change structurally the most. So that's what it, I mean by have a window of opportunity for functional adaptation. That's a good time to do things. Use your body. <laughs> and so when you know this, that it becomes a very important period, how do you then kind of fast forward? and link to what you observe in adolescence to then try to understand, say, in an adult bioarchaeological record, how are you connecting those two? I've only ever looked at adult skeletal remains. Um, so I'm not, I don't work with child, children, remains of young people or anything like that. But when we are looking at adult skeletal remains, which is very common to do, there are a lot of adults, we are trying to interpret behavior from the structure of the skeleton, bone density or bone structure or whatever to work backwards and say, well, this person must have loaded their bones a little differently than this person on average because they have these, you know, they're stronger and more dense or whatever. But I don't know when that person was, was loading. Often we'll assume in archaeological populations that when you're a teenager, you're pretty much doing adult behaviors already. Um, but if your adult behavior is very different than the behaviors that kids and teens do, you would expect that what they're doing as kids and teens would make more of an impact on the skeleton than what they're doing in a, as an adult. If there's, you know, if there's a big change, we might not see the adult behaviors. We're just really going to see I, mostly what's going on during that really that big window of opportunity. But how do you study that from skeletal remains? You you don't know if behavior changed when people were doing what. You got to look at you have to assess living people where you know what they were doing when. That was kind of the point of this study is getting living people loading their bones, like definitely athletes, but at different times relative to this window of opportunity. What do their bones look like as an adult? That's going to be really helpful. So your your participant group um, sounds like you had... Now, now, correct me if I'm wrong. I heard you say that Marta had a data set. So is this that data set? Or did yeah. you guys collect? Okay. Well, so. she collected some of it and I collected some of it. Okay. She specifically worked with gymnasts. So can you tell me about the sample? Because you guys have a pretty mm -hmm. complex sample to be able to do the analysis that you do. So who who is in this study and what kind of data did you collect from them? Uh, everybody in the study is female, uh, biological female. They were recruited different by by both Marta and I at different times for different studies. Um, so I'll, her data set, what she contributed to the study is the gymnasts. So she did a lot of work. Well, this was a long-term study initiated at the University of Saskatchewan in the 90s. Um, so in 1995, the gymnasts were originally recruited. They were kids at that point. Um, there were 30 of them. They were 8 to 15 years old, and they had all been 
competing at least at a provincial level, minimum of two years, minimum of 15 hours a week, some as much as 30 hours a week. They were doing a lot of gymnastics as kids. They were competitive around six years old, most of them. Um, so they were scanned for a study that was looking at the effect of high impact activity. So gymnastics, you're really putting a lot of loading on your bone, on your arms and your legs. Um, they were looking at the effect of that on bone strength in childhood. How much do the bones respond to this really, really high loading? Um, and then there was a follow-up where those girls were recontacted in 2009, 2010. So that's 15 years later. They wanted to see, and so at this point, they're 22 to 28 years old. They're young adults. None of them are doing gymnastics anymore. They, but they'd all retired, and they were interested in, did any of those benefits from all that activity as a kid to their bone, do they, do the, are those retained after you finish the sport? You know, is this going to be lifelong benefits? In which case we might want to encourage young girls to do some high impact loading if it's going to benefit bone mass really for a long time. So she got 25 of the original 30 back into the lab 15 years later, scanned them again, um, and published that their bone mass stays high into their late 20s. So yes, benefit just like, Kara, what you saw in yourself. But remember, that's DEXA. She was doing that with um, DEXA and PQCT, I think. These girls also had DEXA scans. But that was predominantly coming from the cortical bone, I think. Um, so we took those 25 gymnasts and split them into two groups based on once they retired from gymnastics, did they do any other sports or not? And some of them retired and were like, dumb. <laughs> like, I am not doing any competitive elite sport. So we considered them um, kind of after retirement, pretty, not sedentary, but low loading, low loading, doing normal person stuff. Whereas some of those girls retired from gymnastics and went on to become competitive in a range of other sports. They're just very athletic people. Um, a lot of them transitioned into track and field. A lot of them became volleyball players, soccer players. One was a professional acrobat when she was retested. So you've got gymnastics skills are highly transferable. Divers, that kind of stuff. We considered those girls just always lots of loading on the bones. As a kid, now, constant. So those two groups are really interesting because their childhood loading is the same, very high. But their adult loading, very different. So that was a, a good natural experiment, I suppose. Um, and then I had scanned all these runners and soccer players as part of my own study separately. Middle distance runners, like 800 meters, 1500 meters, cross country. So not sprinters. And then some soccer players as well. And they're all running around. So we just considered them kind of runners, runner running type loading. Not all of those athletes started their sport as six-year-olds, eight-year-olds. You know, most kids aren't out running cross-country when they're really young. That's kind of more of, you know, you might start in high school or become an 800-meter runner much later than you would start gymnastics. Um, and so those girls were all currently competing in running or um, soccer, but varied in when they had started that sport. You know, some started as teenagers, some started as kids. 
And so we had kind of the opposite pattern to the gymnasts, all currently active, but different childhood activity levels. Um, and then we just recruited a group of just regular undergrad students who had never been an athlete as just kind of what does the bone look like if you just kind of always just recreationally active, not really doing any kind of sport. So none of these women were recruited for this particular study, but they're, um, they're, we wanted people who had done sports at different times relative to that pubertal window. And these gave us a nice sort of five groups to compare. The big question, what did you find? How did the, you know, early active gymnasts compare to late active gymnasts, but now turn to some other sport versus those who do nothing compared to the runners compared to as uh, the athletics department at Notre Dame refers to them as NARPs, non-athletic regular people. Ah, right. (laughs) (laughs) That's very close to NARC. The NARPs. The NARPs. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I love NARPs. NARPs are so crucial to these kinds of studies. Like what are just regular people that aren't crazy and doing all these insane 30 hours a week of gymnastics. So we, all of the data in the study are from people in their twenties. So we're looking at them as young adults, looking back in time. If you were active now, you had higher bone density in the trabecular spongy stuff. So trabecular bone density, that's what we're really, where you would expect to lose bone with osteoporosis or, or as you get older. Um, so having ha- good bone density there is really beneficial. That's good. Um, you had to be doing something now to have that. It didn't matter that you did 30 hours of gymnastics for 10 years as a kid. If you don't do anything now, you couldn't tell. You look just like a control. They were indistinguishable. So it erased, it just didn't matter. And the complete opposite story in the cortical bone, the dense shell, it didn't matter if you did absolutely nothing now and had not for a long time. If you were active as a kid, you could tell. You could still tell in the cortical bone and you looked significantly different than the controls, the NARPs, who had never been active. So the gymnasts, whether they had retired or or whether they were inactive now or not, you could tell they had done gymnastics. Um, I think their bone strength is 56% higher than the controls still. And they'd retired a, you know, a while ago. Some of them retired as teenagers. <laughs> like 13 years old, you're retiring from sports. So it had been at least 10 years for some of them that they had not done anything. Physical activity in childhood before puberty versus after puberty, it sort of affected these different components of bone strength. Fracture risk in general is about both cortical and trabecular bone, both structure and density. You want good everything. (laughs) You can have high bone mineral density and still get a fracture from osteoporosis if your structural stuff isn't very strong. So to maximize bone strength, you really want to be active all the time, <laughs> lifelong, which I feel like is not a shocker. But why does it need to be lifelong? Well, because it affects different components of bone strength at different times relative to puberty. And also, if I didn't know what these girls were doing, I could not tell. 
I couldn't tell. You wouldn't. You would not know that someone had done gymnastics previously. Like a ton of loading in the past. You, it's invisible. Depend if you're looking at trabecular bone. If I'm looking at cortical bone, I can't see what they're doing now. I can only see what they used to do. I am in the dark as to whether they're still doing that or not. Um, and that's kind of concerning in archaeological populations. If there's some reason to think that adult behavior might be quite different than earlier behavior, then you're really not going to see that in cortical bone. You need to also have trabecular bone. Let me ask you sort of, uh, it, it's going to sound like a slightly diverting top question, but you only looked at women. So what I want to ask you is, I am a 50-something-year-old man <laughs> who played soccer from the time I was seven, and I like this word you're using, till I retired at 16. What would you predict my cortical bone might look like? And if, if you can or cannot tell us, then can you explain why? I would suspect your cortical bone would still look very strong. But the reason I don't know for sure is because if I'm going to scan you now, I need to know when you went through puberty, pretty specifically. Um, and if I asked, how old were you when you achieved peak height velocity, you don't know that. What would you say? I don't know. Maybe fi I was 15 when I had a girl's bra. I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's really hard to retrospectively, so like ask an adult male anything that will help the, you know, they don't know when they went through peak height velocity or whatever. Um, and that's really what you need to identify. So for males, you really need to track them through time as kids through this period and actually measure them every year or whatever to know when they actually went through peak height velocity. You need to measure their height and weight every year. So you can't just go ask a bunch of young adult males the same questions. With females, age at menarche, so how old were you when you got your first period? That's something most adult females, especially in their 20s, will remember relatively accurately, like to the year. I was 15, I was 14. And that timing pretty consistently falls within a year or two of age at peak height velocity. They're pretty correlated. So it's a, a approximation of when they went through peak height velocity that they can actually remember. So that's why, it's, you, you know, you can do this kind of study with women retrospectively where you probably, you can't really with, with males. So actually one of those rare opportunities where we don't know that much about males. We really just know about females. Usually it's the other way around. That's like one in a million studies. Basically. I, know, I love it. I love it. <laughs> but also, I mean, personally, I know like the moment I hit menarche, yeah. I stopped growing. Oh. I, have been, I have been this tall since I was 12. <laughs> and yeah. that is it. Yeah. Uh, and also, after that side note, I would imagine that the gymna gymnasts would have that cortical bone signature more throughout their body, whereas, yeah. you know, the runners, you would just imagine it, you know, the back, the pelvis, and below. Yeah. The, some of, not for this study, but both Marta and I have done other work that looks at arms in these people as well, and that certainly in the gymnasts. Their forearms are way stronger, the bones, I should say, of the forearms are even more notable because most people don't, 
we're not loading our arms as though they're legs. As you think about a gymnast doing a handspring or a, I don't know, they bounce off the floor on their hands. I don't know the terms, but they, they load their arms like as though they're legs a lot of the time. So they really, really, their arms, bones have to deal with that. I mean, the big difference is in their arms for sure. With the runners and soccer players, like soccer, you're not even allowed to use your arms. So really it's like they have very strong leg bones and kind of regular arm bones. If they've been doing some weightlifting, which is often part of the training, you can see that sometimes or, you know, but yeah. They have thick thighs and teeny arms. That's, that's They're little spaghetti arms, <laughs> like me, T-Rex, yeah. So, so you've got a lot of projects though. This is just one. I know you had a piece that came out last year. Tell us about some of the other research that you have going on, that you've done, or that you have coming out, or that you're planning for the near future. Some of the cool stuff is still, uh, we're still working in a team with Jay Stock and Danny Longman and Jonathan Wells. So those of you in the life history or athlete kind of world will know those names. Um, but they, we, that's the work that Danny and I were, did our postdoc research or were hired as postdocs for. That's, we're still, we're just working on the hormones in ultra runners before and after these uh, 230 kilometer races in extreme environments. So I'm of course, particularly interested in how uh, males and females deal with that energetic stress differently. And that's kind of my primary interest, but we're um, still looking at that and then the data are in. And so hopefully those papers will be out soon. And that's been a while waiting, COVID delayed and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, we, so kind of more what you do, I think more along the lines of what you do, Kara, is looking at energetics, um, which is, you know, not, not my area of expertise, but I'm getting much more interested in it kind of because you have to, when you're talking about sex differences, it's often because there we deal with energy differently. Do I smell a collaboration? In the I mean, <laughs> <laughs> of course, given my history of scanning myself, I'm all, I'm so often I'm like, oh, I really want to run an ultra and test myself. Oh. <laughs> like, see if I, but then <laughs> the reality of that is absolutely not. Um, so yeah, interested in, in kind of, We've got some of that stuff coming along. And I've also been working with a mechanical engineer here at the University of Victoria doing um, computer modeling to look at what effect does variation, when you vary the shape of someone's leg bones, how does that affect the kinematics with which they walk or do other sort of motions? Um, for example, climbing stairs, we were got going on right now. And um, so does, so, you know, does, if your bone is more curved, does that actually affect the, how your muscles work or the sort of efficiency with which you can do something? Trying to understand the effects of this variation on actual people moving. Mm -hmm. But I am not, a, you know, an engineer or a biomechanist, so I definitely rely heavily on <laughs> my partners in mechanical engineering. Thank you very much. Uh, but yeah, that stuff's going to be coming out. Um, well, presenting them at the main conference circuit this year and then hopefully publishing. Um, but lots of challenges with trying to build a computer model with archeological bones that are missing mm. all kinds of things. So that's, that's a challenge. Yeah, very cool. The, the working with the mechanical engineer and the stair study, I find interesting because there's this long standing idea 
that Neanderthals with their very short distal limbs mm -hmm. may have been better on steep and uneven terrain. And that's a tough thing to test. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I can see lots of fun applications for that kind of work. Yeah, they also have often quite curved femurs. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the impetus for this study is let's I what's going on build some models with different curvatures and make them climb stairs and uh yeah see what happens <laughs> i feel like <laughs> yeah. I, I do a lot of research that isn't poor, very well planned in advance i'm like well we'll just see oh that was a weird fun <laughs> we're, we're good with fucking around and finding out exactly so. <laughs> jay will laugh we were just laughing about that well, I know you're on Twitter and your lab is also on Twitter. Do you want to share your handles with our listeners so yes, they can find you? Yes, I think, what are they? I think I'm Allie double underscore Murray um, for my personal Twitter, which I just use for work, really. Um, and then our research group is called Phase. And that's, I, there's some weird capitals. It's Phase with a capital P and a U-V-I-C at the end. Oh, okay. Right, I think. Sure. I wrote it, I wrote it down that way, and I found <laughs> you. I found your lab. Can't remember. Kara, are you on tw Twitter or any of the socials? I am at Kara Akabak. Real easy. And you can find me with some underscores as well, but just one. Chris underscore ly, and I don't remember what I am on Instagram. Um, but you know, you can find us by googling. You can no. find the Sausage of Science on SoundCloud and the Human Biology Association page or by Googling or Yahooing. Is there anything else you want to say to listeners uh, before we go, Dr. Murray? Allison? Not, not so much can to I, listeners, can... but to Kara. Yeah. I need to thank you for your website. I started teaching in 2018 for the first time, completely overwhelmed. Oh my God, I had three new preps or something. And I started using the unessay from your website and I looked at some of the, I know you're so generous to share these things because you know, it can be a lot of time to develop these things and maybe you don't necessarily want to just share them with everyone, but very, Why very- Why make everyone else spend that time? Like, <laughs> like we so don't helpful. need to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> no I know, problem. but not everyone is so generous. I don't know, maybe because it's just so much time that you're like, oh God, I don't want to- Now, thank you for but saying that. Very, very I, I, appreciate. I all of that. Honestly, awesome. They love Kara's it. Colleague, I love Susan it. Susan Bloom wrote a whole book on the topic. So I'm guessing Kara uh, maybe learned a few tips on from that. Susan and from Mark Kissel. Mark Kissel also. So thank mm -hmm. you, Mark, as well, from the ether, through the ether. Yes. Um, really valuable for young you know, professors just starting out these resources that you're sharing. Thanks for just highlighting that academics uh, episode you just uh, referenced. We have an episode and an article on those things. So if mm -hmm. anyone out there is curious of what Allison is talking about, you can check those things out. But you're, you're right. Those are all treasures, as well as your work. Thank you for sharing it with us. You were a delight to speak with. It was really <laughs> wonderful delight. chatting with you. We need to do a project together that is ill-planned from the get-go. <laughs> I'm just going to show up in Canada and be like, Allison, I mean, we're going to do some science let's shit just, now. Like, go run. <laughs> let's just go run for the day and see how our bodies do. We'll measure I something. I wanted to go to, to Iceland and do the stone lifting tour, but okay. I can't do that anymore. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. We can be retired, semi-older women doing active things and hurting a lot then, as we do it and then telling <laughs> other people to do yeah. those exact same yeah. things i'm mm -hmm. all for it yeah anyway I'm thank you
Thank you so much for taking the time today. You were absolutely wonderful to talk to, and I look forward to chatting to you in the future. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you.